We are excited to have Tony Payne with us today to talk about his book, Learn the Gospel. Welcome, Tony. And before we talk about our topic, please feel free to introduce yourself. Hi, David. Really great to be with you. Um, yes, my name is Tony Payne. I'm a ministry trainer and writer based in Sydney here in Australia. Um, I've been doing a lot of writing and publishing over my ministry life. I helped to set up Matthias Media. Some people will have heard about that. Um, and have written quite a few books over the years, but um, perhaps most productively, I've got a wife and five children uh, who are all grown up now and a bunch of grandchildren as well. So God's been very kind to us. Uh, Tony, you've written a book about the gospel. So let's start off there. Why is the gospel so foundational and critical to a true authentic faith? Well, it's really because it's what our faith is in. Um, our faith is in Jesus Christ, he's the one we put our trust in. And we only hear about Jesus Christ, the message of Jesus Christ comes to us in the gospel. I think of uh, the opening verses of 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul, I'm, par I'm paraphrasing, Paul sort of says, now let me remind you about this gospel that I preach to you, that you take your stand on, that you are saved by, that you believe in. And then he outlines, he does a little nutshell summary of the gospel um, because it's the kind of rock we cling to. The gospel is what saves us. It's what we believe in. So it's it's at the absolute center or it's the absolute bedrock of of who we are as Christians and what we believe. Yeah. If you were about to share the gospel with a friend, Tony, how would you do that? And what are the important components to a gospel presentation that we should look to include? It's interesting, isn't it? Because at one level, you want to say every friend you talk to is different. Um, they'll be at a different point. They'll have yes. different questions. They might have a different background. They might have some knowledge of Christianity. They might have none. Uh, they might be from another religion. They're, they're all be at a different point. So in one sense, every conversation will have, will be different, but the gospel is just one thing. And it does in, and in the new Testament, it's kind of how I'd answer your question. I'd say, well, what does the new Testament say that the gospel is? And in many ways, this, the book I've written, which is based on an older work, a sort of a complete rewrite of an older work um, about two ways to live, is is really an attempt to summarise those essential gospel New Testament components. Um, and the passage we were looking at earlier and talking about in 1 Corinthians 15 kind of, in a way, captures those. Um, that when you come to the gospel, you must talk about um, the, the Lord Jesus Christ. It sounds an obvious thing to say. But in the New Testament, the gospel centres on who he is um, how God sent him in his love into the world and how he died as a sacrifice for sins and really died and was buried, as, as 1 Corinthians 15 then says, and was risen to become the Lord of the world, to become uh, the Lord and Christ of the world. That's what the word Christ means. So the essential gospel components are the proclamation of Jesus as the crucified Savior, as the risen Lord and judge of all. And that calls on us for a response how are you going to respond to this risen lord who offers forgiveness and who offers new life but who will come to judge and so how are you going to respond to him so the gospel has a kind of call within it so those yeah. are the kind of essential components you'd want to get to if you're going to say i really want to explain the gospel to somebody but depending on their background like i was saying depending on who they are you'd also probably want to fill in some of the background concepts that make those basic core gospel elements understandable um, yeah. so in the two ways to live framework you fill in a background that has creation and sin and god's judgment 
as a kind of like a backdrop um, against which who Jesus is, what he came to do, how he was risen from the dead and so on makes sense. Yeah, such a good point, Tony, because listening is such an important part of, you know, presenting the gospel, isn't it? And and, and actually hearing where that person is. And, and in doing so, I found that people can generally fall into one of two ditches when we talk about sin. I find that people will either be offended at the thought of them being a sinner or that they know that they are and that they think they're actually too bad to be forgiven. What are some helpful pointers when having these two different conversations? I guess in both cases, really, David, it goes down to your definition of what sin really is, and especially helping people to see that sin is primarily a rebellion against God, a rejection of God himself and his claim over us as our creator, as our ruler, as our Lord. And um, that means that um, if I think that sin is just a matter of breaking certain rules, I haven't quite understood it, but also... um, if I think that God could never forgive someone like me, I also haven't realized that sin is basically a rebellion against him. And he's the one who can deal with that rebellion and pay for it and pay for the punishment that we deserve. And so because it's God, who's the person at issue, uh, he's the one who can deal with any of our sins through Mm. what the Lord Jesus Christ has done on the cross, of course. Yeah. Yeah. That's really helpful. I found it helpful in your book as well. When you, you say that to define sin as rule-breaking is to define it in terms of its symptoms rather than the disease itself. And the disease, according to the Bible, is deep-rooted, chronic, and ultimately fatal. I thought this was really helpful. Explain that to us, Tony. Well, very often when you come to explain the gospel to people, um, the gospel of Jesus crucified and risen, um, it only really makes sense and the pennies drop for people when they understand what it is that Jesus has come to do or the backdrop against which God sent him in his love into the world. Um, And if we really understand that, that God has a claim over us as our creator and Lord, that we all rebel against that. And so we're all under the sentence of his judgment. We're all, we all deserve his punishment because we all rebel against him each in our own way. Some of us do it really flagrantly. Some of it, like the, some of us like the Pharisees do it in a very religious way or some of us do it in a very fist-shaking-at-God, um, anti-religious way. But one way or another, we all rebel against him and his claim over us. And therefore, we all rightly deserve his his judgment. And it's kind of against that black kind of night, against the the black backdrop of the problem we have and the terrible situation we're in, that the light of what God has done, the glorious, wonderful, loving thing he's done in sending his son, Uh, becomes clear so it's really important when you explain the gospel i think for it to become clear just what jesus has done and just why his death is so central people have to understand why sin is such a problem and why judgment is what we face yeah 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 the gospel isn't something that as christians we graduate graduate away from you describe the gospel as the ongoing engine for christian growth tell us about that tony yeah kind of it's why i think it's really important for Christians to learn the gospel, which is the name of this book, um, because the gospel isn't just something, it's not like a ticket that we kind of get into the into heaven with and we just kind of keep in our back pocket. Um, it's really the shape of the whole Christian life when you think about it. Um, I think about um, a verse like Colossians 2, 6 and 7, where, where Paul says, just as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so continue in him. Um, I'm doing this from memory 
rooted and established, bearing fruit and growing and abounding in thanksgiving, that kind of feel. In other words, the Christian life really is about growing in submitting to and living under joyfully and thankfully the lordship of Jesus. Yeah. And yeah. the gospel proclaims the lordship of Jesus. The more we come to really grasp and internalize and put our trust in that, to really believe, yeah, Jesus really did die for me to give me a whole new life, to wipe out the old life, to pay for my sins, to set me right with God, to forgive me and to give me a new life living with him as my Lord, to become more like him, to abound in thanksgiving as I become more and more conformed to the image of, of my Lord. Um, that's the Christian life. And it's essentially just a constant restatement of the gospel. And so it's not as if there's some other path to growth in the Christian life. It's just letting the gospel take its root deeper and deeper in our lives and work out its implications in our lives more and more, really. Yeah. Which is why it's so important that we learn the gospel and understand it well. That's right. You yeah, yeah, absolutely. Of course, the crux of the gospel is the cross. Take us to that point, Tony. What, what did Christ achieve upon that cross? We've kind of touched on it already, but the key aspect of the cross is the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus. And when you understand that we all deserve punishment, see, for most people, that, that's it's tough to understand why that's the case, why Jesus had to die. If you ask most non-Christians why Jesus died on the cross, it's very hard for them to really understand. They might mumble something, then, oh, he died for my sins or something, or maybe he died to set us a good example of sacrifice and love. But unless you understand that we're all subject to God's judgment and punishment, that we're all facing a terrible sentence, rightfully and justly, it's only then that it makes sense why a death took place because the punishment for sin is death because that's God's judgment against our rebellion. Jesus' death is a stepping into a substitution, a substitute. It's, mm -hmm. it's dying our death for us. It's dying in our place. And it's why it's this crucial turning point in the whole Bible story that the problem of sin that has beset humanity, that was Israel's problem that they never solved, that the blood of bulls and goats couldn't really take away, uh, that Jesus came um, to die, to pay that penalty, to make that sacrifice of atonement. And so it goes right to the center of, of, um, of how it is that we can be made right with God again. Although, and I'm sure you're going to, you're probably going to go on to ask me about the resurrection. It's very important that you don't stop yeah. there, that you don't get to the cross and the wonderful news of Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice um, and the forgiveness that that wins for us uh, without going on to his glorious resurrection, because that's really the climax of the gospel. He dies to pay for sin and then he rises to be the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. And why is Jesus divinity essential to the cross, Tony? Well, both his divinity and his humanity are essential. And uh, we dig into this, in, uh, in Learn the Gospel. In fact, really what the, the book kind of does, it kind of goes through each of these six kind of aspects of the two ways to live framework of, of summarizing the gospel and sort of really digs into them. And in the cross chapter, we really dig into why Jesus' divinity was necessary because if Jesus was kind of like a third party, if, he, if there was God and there was sort of us and then kind of Jesus was this other guy, then, then how is it just for 
God to punish somebody else instead of punishing us. I mean, if I do something wrong, then I kind of randomly say, well, I'm sorry, David, you're going to be punished for it. Uh, it's just kind of unjust. It's unfair. You didn't do anything. I mean, why should? Why do you deserve to be punished? What God does on the cross, and Romans 3 says this, that God puts Jesus forward, puts his son forward as a sacrifice of atonement so as to be just and to be the and to be the God who justifies the ungodly. And so Jesus' divinity, the fact that he was God, that God was putting himself forward in the person of his son to take the sacrifice for sin, there's no third party involved. It's not some sort of abuse of some other person. It's God taking it all upon himself. It's God taking the initiative. And that's why... Jesus being God is very important for the gospel. Yeah. And you mentioned as well, um, Jesus's humanity is also very important. Well, why is that, Tony? Well, if, if he was not a human, the first, second, or I think it's the second chapter of Hebrews, isn't it? Makes this point yeah. really, yeah. really clearly. Yeah. He shared our flesh and blood uh, so that he could be a sacrifice. He said he could stand for us before God so that he could represent us and be the high priest and the sacrifice on our behalf. And so, in order to um, pay the penalty for our sin, he had to be a man. He had to be a human. And so this is the, mm. the wondrous thing about the atonement and about the gospel is that God himself steps into history in the person yeah. of his son uh, to pay the penalty that only he could pay and that only a man could die uh, to pay. And so Jesus, both God and man, takes that penalty upon himself. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Why is Christ's physical resurrection essential to the gospel? And what are some mistakes that people can have when thinking about this? Well, um, it's a physical it needs to be a physical resurrection because if it's not a physical resurrection, it's not a resurrection. <laughs> a resurrection means rising from the dead. Uh, it doesn't mean that your your um, your soul lives on or the idea or memory of you lives on or the experience of you lives on. Those are all true things. But my mum died nearly 15 months ago now and all sorts of ways she lives on in my heart. I keep remembering of her. An old song will remind me of her, but that's not a resurrection. A resurrection is someone who was dead is now alive again. And it's really critical that Jesus rose, actually rose from the dead. Um, because in, in rising from the dead and fulfillment of all those prophecies about the son of David not seeing decay and rising to be God's Lord and Christ, it vindicates Jesus. And it says that his sacrifice was accepted to, by God. It, it tells us that he was innocent and that he didn't deserve to die. Uh, and it shows us that he's risen up now, the conqueror of death, uh, to be the Lord and the ruler of all. And to be really clear, Tony, this is a bodily resurrection, isn't it? In, in, let's, let's paint this in big, you know, clear letters. You know, this isn't about a spiritual, you know, a ghost walking around. This is a bodily resurrection, right? Absolutely. The, the Gospels make that very, very clear, don't they? They go to some trouble to kind of to say, this is not a ghost. Look, give me some fish that I can eat. This, yeah. Is, yeah. this is a risen man. And as a man, as a risen human, as a, a risen divine human, as God and man, he rises and rises to God's right hand. And this is terribly important because it means, this is what Hebrews says, 
that the rule that humanity always meant was meant to have over the creation god made man to be his kind of representative rulers over the world have dominion over the mm. world uh, we failed at that because of our sin failed terribly yeah. Um, yeah and so the whole creation is subject to frustration and so on but in jesus we have a man who really did submit to god's rule and is risen by god to sit at god's right hand as the christ the christ means the ruler the worldwide ruler um, who rules at god's right hand so um, Jesus is a risen, is the risen divine son, but he's risen as a man, as a physical man, in a kind of flesh that we don't quite fully understand. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 also says. If you're trying to say yeah. this is exactly what it's like, it's a bit hard to say, but it's yeah. a real physical bodily resurrection. Yeah. You've just mentioned about Christ being at the right-hand side of a father. Talk about that position that Jesus now occupies. Well, what, what's he doing, Tony, right now? Um, well, um, this is the climax of Peter's great gospel sermon in Acts. And it's really interesting if you ever go through the, the kind of exercise of looking at all the gospel sermons uh, throughout the book of Acts, the times when the apostles stand up and they preach the gospel. It's, it's often a bit shocking for us as, as modern evangelical Christians, uh, because for us, we think that the death of Jesus would be the one point that you would never, ever, ever miss out if you were going to stand up and preach the gospel, right? Um, but interestingly, when the apostles jump up and preach the gospel time after time in Acts, the one thing they never, ever miss out is his resurrection um, because it shows that Jesus has risen as the one who was crucified. He was dead and he's now risen to be the Lord, the Christ, the ruler of everything. And as the Christ, as this ruler at God's right hand, he pours out his spirit in Acts chapter 2. He offers forgiveness for everything that the law couldn't redeem us for, mm -hmm. um, as another uh, speech in Acts says. And so as the risen ruling Lord, what he now does is he rules and he offers forgiveness and new life and pours out his spirit into the hearts of his people. And he will return to judge. There'll come a time when uh, he will return to fulfill his role as God's judge, as the man who God has appointed, as Acts 17 says, to be the judge of all. Yeah. Unfortunately, it isn't uncommon for people to try and sugarcoat the gospel by removing any mention of the final judgment. What are some big problems we have when people leave this out when speaking with someone? Well, we've kind of touched on this a little bit already, but I guess I'd summarize it by saying there are two problems. Um, one is it makes it very hard to explain what the death of Jesus really means if you evacuate the gospel of the idea of judgment. Um, and some modern kind of gospels are a bit like that. They, they don't like to mention judgment. And so it gets hard to explain what Jesus' death really was about because it was about taking the judgment of God upon himself that we deserved. And so um, if we remove that, we kind of, we really remove one of the central aspects or the central aspect of what Jesus' death was about. But also if we take away the idea of final judgment, the idea that there is coming a day when we all stand before God and God has appointed that time. And as Acts 17 says, he's even appointed the man who's going to be the judge on that day. That's his son. Risen Jesus, then it, it kind of 
takes away the um, the urgency and the the end of history that's coming. It um, it kind of makes the world a bit like Ecclesiastes that just goes round and round and round and round. Yeah. Um, yeah. But even Ecclesiastes says that judgment's coming. And um, with Jesus as the risen Lord, we know that the time and the day has been appointed and the man who's been appointed is going to be that judge. So it, it kind of frames history. It frames our lives and it gives us an urgency to get out there and preach the gospel, I think. Yeah. What will that final judgment look like, Tony? We know that true born-again Christians are secure in Christ, but will we still have to give an account for our lives, and what will that look like? Yeah. When you ask what it's going to look like, um, the the, um, the first thing to say is, well, it's going to look like some of the passages in the book of Revelation, but that <laughs> that's, that's kind of partly the point. Um, in that in in the various points in the New Testament, we get, we get pictures of the final judgment, but they're kind of pictures. They're metaphors. They're they're obviously kind of illustrative kind of images that that convey to us what will happen and what the criteria for judgment will be. Um, but what it will actually look like, um, it's going to be the end of the world. It's going to be something that no one's ever experienced. It's going to be a whole new world. Um, and I'm I'm reluctant to go into great detail as to exactly what it looks like, but certainly, um, I think what you're asking is what will it be like? What will happen there? Mm -hmm. um, and the Bible says that we'll all appear before Him to to render uh, to God for the deeds we've done in the body. And so, there is some kind of assessment and judgment of who we are as Christians and what we've done. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3 seems to say that those people who've ministered the gospel but in a not terribly faithful or good way will themselves be saved, but as through the flames, as it were. Like it, 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 they'll suffer loss in some sort of way or they won't be commended, perhaps. Um, and that kind of raises the whole subject of reward and the nature of reward, mm. um, which is mm. a tricky subject. Um, I tend to think that the the reward for God's people uh, is the pleasure and um, and blessing and joy of God in the work we've done through him and because of him. And so it's not as if I get an extra big harp or an extra big pile of, or an extra big mansion in, in the heavenly mansion or something. It's, I, I think it's the joy of, of God's pleasure at our service. That's the reward as it were. Um, but yeah. that may be going into yeah. more detail than you want. Yeah, that's helpful. Thank you. You mentioned at the top um, of this interview that the gospel calls for a response. What does an authentic response look like and how should it develop over time? Well, it's interesting that we said talked earlier about the gospel being the sort of engine or ongoing kind of driver of the Christian life. And that's because the basic response to the gospel is the basic ongoing response of the Christian life. Um, and so the basic response right through the New Testament is twofold. It's faith and repentance, to use uh, the, the New Testament language. Or in more modern English, we might say it's trust or reliance upon God and upon Jesus Christ and all that he's done. And it's a turning around, it's a turning back to and submitting to Jesus and to God as the rightful mm -hmm. ruler of our lives. Mm -hmm. And that twin response of trusting the message and trusting God and Jesus Christ uh, for forgiveness and for being the truth and the foundation of our lives and turning back to him, therefore, to submit to his life, to stop being a rebel and start being a servant and a, and someone who, who follows and someone who obeys. 
that twin response, faith and repentance, is the initial response that the gospel calls for. Um, and it's the ongoing everyday response as we wake up every morning and confess our sins and ask for God's forgiveness and pray that he would work in us and change us to live for him and bear fruit for him every day. So yeah, that ongoing response is um, is what's an, it's the initial response and it's the response of our whole lives. Um, and in the sort of two ways to live framework that the Learn the Gospel book kind of digs into, that's kind of like the sixth and final kind of box or point of the of the presentation that given who Jesus is, what's the response? It's essentially keep rebelling and living your own way or turn back to God in faith and repentance. Yeah, really helpful. One of the things that I've noticed over the years is when you speak to some Christians, they they often think of repentance as this one thing that I done back in the eighties when I become a Christian, a one time uh, thing. But what does true repentance look like, Tony? interesting calvin said that the essence of the christian life was repentance that it was this ongoing turning from but the word literally means to sort of turn away from something back to something else yes. um uh, colloquially we'd say to do a 180 do you have that expression in in the uk i did yeah. a 180 yeah. yeah um that's what repentance is it's a 180 i was going this way and i've turned around and gone somewhere else um and the reason it's if we put it like that the reason it's the essence of the ongoing, the begin, not only the beginning of the Christian life, where I realized I was a rebel against God, I need to stop going that way. I need to turn around and go this way. I need a whole new life uh, living under God's rule. Well, we find that just the, the nature of the ongoing presence of sin in our lives, uh, the old habits, the old vestiges of the old life, we keep having to turn away from that and to turn towards this constantly it's it's like in colossians 3 where paul says because we've now got this whole new life where we've died and risen up to be with christ and we've got this whole new life therefore we kind of kill off and get rid of yeah. what remains of our old earthly kind of self um, and keep putting on and and turning towards the new self that's being renewed to be like uh, our creator in compassion and kindness and love one another and so on so that movement uh, to turn away from and to turn towards it, it's just ongoing. It's the nature of our lives because uh, we won't be perfected and we won't uh, finally have turned completely away from all those things and gotten rid of all those things until that great day when God delivers yeah. us from all of that finally. Mm. Yeah, yeah, sure. What are some indicators that someone has been born again? It's usually um, some indication of those two things that we've been talking about. Uh, that is um, an indication that they've come to realize who they are as a rebel and a sinner and have turned from, and have realized that Jesus has come to die and to rise uh, to provide a whole new life, to provide forgiveness and a new life living under his rule. And they've taken not only a conscious step to put their trust in him and to turn away from their old life, but you're seeing that starting to work out in uh, the decisions they make and, and the putting off of the old and the putting on the new. And because that's a process, um, sometimes people have a real struggle depending on how, how deep in the mud they were when they turned around and, and repented. And sometimes people have a lot of the old kind of mud sticking to them and it takes a while to yeah. clean it all off. Uh, just in terms of the consequences in our lives and the habits we've developed. Um, but so long as there's progress, so long as there's repentance, I need to keep putting that off and I've done it again. I need to put that off and turn towards 
that's the kind of marks that you see in someone who's um who's really been got God's spirit working in them. It's a bit like Galatians five when it says that the fruit of the flesh and the old way is that all these terrible things and the fruit of the new way um, of the spirit is love, joy, peace, and patience and all the rest. Yeah. Yeah. And the person who's genuinely does have God's spirit experiences that battle. It's kind of, I want to see someone for whom that struggle is the reality of their life to put off that old, to follow the spirit in putting on the new. It's not someone who's all kind of arrived and is perfect and got all together. It's someone who, in whom that battle is raging. Yeah. You think of Romans 7 in that point, Tony, right, with Paul, the Apostle Paul wrestling with himself. We shouldn't be surprised if Scripture tells us time and time again that false teachers will come in and distort the gospel or teach completely false gospel. In our context today, in 2022, what are some of the most popular gospel distortions that we need to be aware of? nearly all distortions of the gospel in some way downplay the necessity of Jesus' death because they downplay the reality of sin and judgment or they downplay the reality of Jesus being Lord and therefore downplay the necessity to repent and to live with him as our ruler. And so you'd say many of the, the current kind of quasi-Christian gospels um kind of have those have both of those kind of features it seems to me so i think for example where i am here in sydney one of the most common sort of alternative gospels is a kind of a almost like a prosperity light kind of gospel it's kind of not a full-on prosperity gospel but it's kind of close it's basically saying come to jesus come to church and your life will be better um your dreams that you have you'll have an opportunity to to fulfill them and we'll give you a, a better, richer life um, because God wants to give you that better, richer life. Um, and it's it's really fascinating. So rather than the message being you have a real problem with God and you need to turn around and repent, it's you've got a real problem in your life with life being a mess and God's here to help yeah. you sort of fix it up. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's probably one of the most common distortions where we are. I don't know what it's like. Uh, exactly the same. But that's yeah. A, yeah, that's a that kind of therapeutic gospel that it's really about fixing my life and making my life better. Uh, it's yeah. not about the fact that my life's a mess and it's a mess because I'm a rebel against God. And that's the issue. In other words, it's a gospel that sort of tries to treat the symptoms of our of our life and kind of fix them up and make us better without really treating the disease. Yeah, yeah, it's really helpful, Tony. Thank you. What advice do you have for talking with someone that will agree that the Christian gospel message is true, but then they somehow affirm that there are many gods and ways to be saved? Yeah, that's interesting because when you have conversations with people, as we were saying a bit earlier on, everyone's different. They come from lots of different uh, kind of backgrounds and have different questions. Um, and it's really common in our kind of postmodern sort of world um, for people to have lost confidence in the idea that anything can be absolutely or objectively yes. true, like right. really true, right. not just for me, but for you as well. And certainly in my experience, when people say the kind of thing you've just mentioned, it's kind of like, well, great, that's true for you. And maybe it's even possibly true for me, but all these other people um, who are in different religions, they can have their own truth and it can be true for them as well. And it's that kind of relativism, I guess you could call it, where... Uh, we accept the possibility that there is no one truth or nothing that's objectively really true. There's just lots of people with opinions and truths. 
it's very much a feature of modernism or postmodernism. Um, but it kind of doesn't work, and no one actually lives that way. So we kind of we kind of say this in order to have the conversation and sometimes to keep the claims of Christianity at bay, I suspect. But mm. in reality, when it comes down to really living our lives and what we think is true, we all live as if there are certain things that are really true for everybody. We all we all believe that racism really is wrong for everyone. It's not just, well, I believe racism's wrong, but you've got your view, those Nazis, well, maybe for them it's not wrong. You know, yeah, we, we, yeah. we don't think that in our lives as we it's but somehow we kind of adopt this as a debating tactic sometimes i think yeah yeah really helpful tony thank you you've written your book that we've been talking about today learn the gospel in a way in which people can learn together uh, tell us a little bit about that tony well what i really wanted to do was provide a way for for groups of christians say in their small groups or in gathering together as friends in their churches in their student groups to learn the gospel um it just from from many years of doing ministry training and ministry i'm i never cease to be amazed at how how common it is for christians to have some kind of idea of what the gospel's about they've kind of if you ask them to articulate it they'll throw out a lot of concepts um and and good concepts but in terms of really understanding and grasping how the gospel fits together for example how jesus death relates to jesus resurrection and why they're both so important uh, and how they both really depend on an understanding of who God is as the creator of all and of sin and of judgment. Most Christians can't really put those pieces together, um, in my experience. And so um, the old original two ways to live kind of course that originally used to exist and that we've now kind of turned into kind of two things. And this is the first one, learn the gospel. It really aims to teach Christians to to really know thoroughly what the gospel is by using the, the two ways to live framework and to dig into each point, look at the Bible, discuss it together, understand it really well. Because if we can grasp the gospel deeply, it's life-changing. Our whole Christian life yeah. depends yeah. on knowing this gospel and clinging to it. And it's strange we don't spend much time really learning it and understanding it well. So that's kind of why... I thought it would be a really useful thing to do. And we decided to put it together in a way that people could do together in small groups to, to learn, to discuss, to study questions, to read some stuff in the book, to watch some videos and so on. It's kind of yeah. a package like that that helps you as a group to really dig into each aspect of the gospel and understand it. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a brilliant book, Tony. Thank you for writing it. And and thank you so much for your time this morning as well. I've, I've really enjoyed speaking to you. Time's absolutely flown by. Before we let you go, do you have any closing thoughts? Um, it's always funny as an author um, because... Um, you know, you have this book that you've written and the people expect you to want to promote your book, of course, etc. But it's it's really the gospel I want to promote. And insofar yeah. as this book is useful at all, um, it's only because the gospel's so powerful and so useful because the gospel makes such a difference in our lives. And that by really digging into it and understanding it better and grasping hold of its marvelous truths uh, and understanding the alternatives, as we've been mentioning, the false gospels and the other alternatives that are in our world and clarifying all that in our minds, mm. that kind of gospel clarity is just deeply powerful for our lives. Uh, and that's what I'm hoping and praying that uh, people can experience and grow in um, through coming to learn the gospel. And if this little book is a help in doing that, great. But if there's another way you want to learn the gospel, just do that. The gospel is a powerful thing. Yeah. And how can people keep in touch with your work, Tony? 
Uh, a couple of ways. Um, a lot of my books are published, or most of my, nearly all my books are published through Matthias Media uh, that some of you will have, have heard of. And you can just go to matthiasmedia.com.au uh, and you can um, uh, search for all the stuff I've done, including this recent one, Learn the Gospel. It's also available in the UK through um, other excellent uh, organizations like uh, the Good Book Company and 10 of those and those kind of places also have this material and distribute it over there too. Um, and I also have a, a little weekly uh, newsletter podcast thing that I do as well called Two Ways News. And so if you're interested in uh, catching up with that, it's just, you can find that at twoways.news and I sort of put out some thoughts and ideas with a good friend of mine, Philip Jensen, every week. Excellent. We'll make sure that we find the link for your book and for your podcast, and we'll put them in the description below for wherever you're listening to this. Make sure that you check that out. Tony, thanks again for your time. Really enjoyed it. It's been an absolute pleasure, David. Thank you.